This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they're just clearing us out again, making us start over again. And I don't think we should have to put up with that kind of thing. We pack up as much as we can, as fast as we can, but they don't give us any kind of warning for it either. Despite all the discussion and all the efforts, there are still tents on the street along Hastings on the downtown east side. So yesterday, as you heard there, city staff moved in to remove some of them, and that did not go over well with the people who live there and the people who support them. So we asked for comment from the city of Vancouver, and what they provided was a statement that essentially says this is ongoing work to address the Vancouver Fire Chief's safety order and that their, their homelessness services outreach team continues to connect with people to offer them access to support services in shelter spaces or available SRO rooms. However, there is a different perspective, though, for the people who are down there. Let's talk more about that right now. Ryan Suds is with us, an organizer with Stop the Sweets. Ryan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. How often does this happen? So it's been happening since November. We've seen this uh, police-led street sweep happening in the past five weeks, two to three times a week. And that's when we see city workers arriving with what started with a small group of police and yesterday uh, bloomed into a group of 20 police officers showing up. Right, it's, but it is the city bylaw officers who are doing the work here. The police are there to support the bylaw officers. Yeah, so the, the, the city workers are working with the residents, but like, as you can imagine, like, if, you're, uh, if you're in violation of a bylaw and 20 police officers show up, it sends uh, a particular message, if you know what I mean. Um, so people feel a lot of pressure from the police. But yeah, the, the city workers are doing the bylaw work, The police are there as well, putting out a certain vibe, I would say. Okay, so you're saying this is happening more frequently than is there, I guess the question I think, Ryan, that most people have is, are there there not places for people to go? Like, we keep getting told that we're moving people, we're giving them options. Are people taking those options? Like, some people are. Some people have moved into shelter. Some people, thankfully, have gotten housing. Um... Whether people are happy with that housing is another story. I mean, I'm sure you and your listeners know the state of SROs. Other folks, though, are saying they're not, they feel safer in a tent than in an SRO. They feel safer in a tent than in a shelter, which really speaks to a sad state of affairs that people would rather be here than in these other spaces. So I think the, the question we keep coming down to is whether the, the, what's being offered is suitable for the person on the, on the street. And if it's not suitable for that person, then they should be left alone. Right, but that's clearly not going to happen, right? Because of the fire chief's order. So is there a better way to do this, do you think? Like, I, I think certainly the, like, one of the best ways forward is as, as an organizer with Stop the Sweeps is stopping the sweeps. Like, there's no way that taking somebody's tent and a blanket in a cold snap is a good, justifiable thing and makes people feel better. And so I think as a, you know, like building new housing takes time and we're not going to get a bunch of new shelter beds overnight. 
But what we can do right now is stop stealing poor people's things, especially in a cold snap. Uh, like, I think it reflects badly on, on us as a city to be treating people like that. Okay, so then where do the things go? We know that we also saw yesterday that they pack stuff up, right? They, they, have, they come with boxes or containers and they, they pack the stuff up for people. Well, where do people get access to their things after? Yeah, so stuff, stuff, you know, they say it goes into storage. Um, there's a storage facility that was set up because of community pressure that people can voluntarily put their belongings. Um, this, I don't, I don't know the exact location of where it goes with this, but theoretically people can get access to it. But what's really revealing is when the city does these police-led, um, not police-led, police-accompanied sweeps, um, they call it an impoundment. So, you know, they're saying they're putting things into storage, but they call it an impoundment, which to me, you know, like an impoundment is not really generally a voluntary good thing. So it's going into storage, but a lot of people feel that's the last time I will see right. my belongings. Right. Ryan, have things gotten better down there? I mean, are there more options for people? Are there more? Like, I don't know. I really don't know if there are truly more options. Um, I think that there are, are right now, given the state of the options, my feeling is that, like, there are always going to be people until these options get better, until the housing gets better, who don't feel safe uh, in, the, in these housing. Someone told me yesterday, uh, what did they say? They would rather be homeless and fight for what they have than wallow and die in an SRO covered in cockroaches and rats. Like, the, like there are options, but are they, are they humane? Are they respectful? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. People, it, it, everyone's different, but there are yeah. certainly people out there who don't like what's out there. Ryan, what would you like people to know? Oh, I want people to know that the sweeps are bad. And I know that a lot of folks have a lot of different feelings about, about tent camps, but taking someone's blankets before a cold snap is not, is not a good thing to do. Yesterday was pink shirt day. It was the anti-bullying day. And I saw a lot of people getting paid to be bullies on the street yesterday. Uh, sweeps are not good, and they got to stop. They're not a way that, like, it doesn't make us a good city. It makes it a bad city when we engage in practices like that. There's, the city's got to figure something. They've got to take a more humane approach. It just, I just want people to know that it's a bad action that's happening down there with sweeps. All right, Ryan, listen, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. We appreciate that. That's Ryan Suds, one of the organizers of Stop the Sweeps, uh, concerned about what's happening down there. I mean, it is the fire chief's safety order. That's what the city says. That's why they go in there periodically to uh, do some of that cleanup, move some of those tents out there. Uh, but you know what? Ryan raises a point about the temperatures too. So again, we've we've asked the city to expand a little bit more on this. Uh, just tell us, like, where, was there room made for people? Where did they go? Uh, they did not make anybody available. They did send a statement saying that they're doing this because of the uh, the fire chief's order. But obviously, you know, still a few questions as Ryan has raised there too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. How would you feel about boarding a plane without a boarding pass? That the way maybe you open up your iPhone, you can actually do that by getting on a plane. The reality is that's actually here. Air Canada has become the first airline in Canada to try to use facial recognition technology to identify passengers. In fact, select passengers from YVR and Toronto Pearson are being asked if they want to try out the new system. I believe at YVR, it's flights, certain flights, Air Canada flights from YVR to Winnipeg that are up for this. So that would be instead of the traditional boarding pass and government ID. 
So how good is this system? And if this is the beginning, where could this lead? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Juan Tontat, who's the founder and chief executive officer of Clearview AI. Thank you for being with us this morning. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on your show. So how does this technology work? Like, Is it very accurate, I guess? Uh, Simi, that's a great question. So facial recognition over the last you know, three or four years has dramatically increased in accuracy. Um, and that's really due to the advent of artificial intelligence and neural networks. Um, so previously, facial recognition algorithms that weren't accurate would try and measure kind of the distance between your eyes on the eyes and the nose and things like that. Whereas an AI neural network algorithm is trained on millions and millions of examples of faces from different angles, from different lighting, and across all demographics. Um, and there's a study a test called NIST, which is run, NIST is actually the National Institute of Standards and Technology in America, um, and it tests 650 different algorithms for facial recognition, and they're from all over the world. Um, and uh, they break it down by accuracy across mugshot photos, visa photos, wild photos, and kiosk photos. And our algorithm, Clearview, um, when it comes to the accuracy of picking a photo out of a lineup of 12 million, it's at 99.85%, which is much better than the human eye. So the technology has really advanced in terms of accuracy, and they also tested across all different types of demographics, East Asians, South Asians, um, African faces, and so on. And, you know, there is very undetectable um, differences in the demographic accuracy. Okay, so I guess I wonder how this would work then. So would you have to provide that picture when you book your flight? Uh, and then that's the one that they would use at the gate? Like, how, how does this work? And are other airlines looking at this? Yeah, so the other airlines in America and around the world that have started to adopt spatial recognition to speed up processing. So airport personnel today are overworked, or they're underpaid, and you can see that in every travel season. Um, and wait times at airports are really long. So Newark Airport, which, you know, I take a lot of flights out, the average time, I believe, is 23 minutes. And that's average. So in peak time, it's, you know, a lot longer. So that's part of the, you know, motivation there. And how it would work is you would opt into it as a consumer. So when you buy your ticket, you would choose to use facial recognition. And you can choose not to use facial recognition. You probably upload a photo of yourself on um, the place, the app where you're checking in. And when you get to the airport, um, you can imagine going to a kiosk to print your bag tags and not having to type in all this information. Um, and if you don't have any bags uh, that you're checking in, you can, you know, uh, go through security in a much quicker way. So the person who's checking your ID there and also checking at the gate, um, that could be sped up a lot. Hmm. Okay. I guess I also have some privacy concerns with this too, right? And I know you touched on some of that, but would this be kept? Or would you have to do it every single time you book a flight? Great question. So I believe Air Canada and what they've said about uh, this technology is um, they're only storing the data for 36 hours. And then after that, they're deleting it. So each flight, when you check in, you would choose to use facial recognition. And even for those who are concerned about privacy, who are opting in not to uh, use facial recognition, their travel times will also increase. So there's also a benefit to those people as well. Okay. So that is a way, I guess, to incentivize people to try this out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it's a very narrow use case. Um, so these uh, they're only keeping it for 36 hours and then disposing of that information. So you, you, know, you can choose it to use it um, when you need to. Um, and I think that you know, travel is something that 
uh, you know, could be a lot better when it comes to the amount of time uh, that people are waiting for. National polling in, um, has shown that there's a vast, you know, uh, agreement from people about the use of facial recognition for airports. So the Center of Data Innovation did a poll of, you know, 3,000 uh, U.S. adults. And when you break it down, essentially it's 30, sorry, 73.1% of people who are pro-facial recognition in airports in order to speed up uh, processing times. Right. Okay. So you feel like this is this is a good way to incentivize people here, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think that, um, again, a lot of airport workers are overworked. Um, and, um, you know, it's also an option for people. So, you know, fiddling around with your phone, trying to find your boarding pass, all that kind of stuff, um, you don't have to do uh, with facial recognition. All right. Well, thank you so much for describing it to us this morning. Well, thank you. I really feel like this is the future. This is what we're going to be seeing. That's Juan Tontat, founder and chief executive officer of Clearview AI. This is the future. Here's the thing. People may say, I'm concerned about my privacy. Yeah, fair. But if they were to say to you, you can skip the security line. If you sign up for this, people will sign up for this, right? If you can streamline the process of going to the airport, going through security, getting on an airplane by saying, hey, why don't you try using this facial recognition and you opt into it? I know tons of people would definitely sign up for that. What about you? Would you do it? I think you probably would, right? If you think, oh yeah, I don't want to stand in that lineup. I don't want to take off my shoes and you know, I don't want to take out my laptop and all that kind of stuff. Just yeah, I'll do facial recognition. I think people would absolutely say yes. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. As we were talking a little bit about travel, we thought let's keep that conversation going this morning because travel has really changed since the pandemic, hasn't it? One big thing that we have really realized, I think, is that now we know anything can happen. And therefore, that box that you always used to ignore at the bottom of the screen for travel insurance is now getting clicked on. And you would think that's a good thing, right? But apparently it has also become pretty overwhelming for, you guessed it, travel insurance companies. Stats show, and there was a survey conducted uh, by a company called Research and Knowledge Equals Insights, uh, and they did this for Blue Cross Canada, and the stats show that 42% of the respondents in their survey are now more likely to buy travel insurance coverage when planning a trip than in the past. Meanwhile, you have problems like this. Companies like Allianz Global Assistance, you know, huge company that sells travel insurance in Canada, they're now warning customers at call times uh, could exceed 30 minutes. Claims processing could take up to eight weeks. They are swamped because of people buying travel insurance. Joining us now to talk more about this is Martin Firestone, president at Travel Secure Inc. Martin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This almost, it, it just seems so counterproductive, doesn't it? We were told to always buy travel insurance. We start buying travel insurance and now that's a problem? Well, it's just like everything else, okay? When we were through covid Basically, sales went down to zero. So they laid people off. They People went into other industries. So all of a sudden now, as you see yesterday, 384% increase in travel and a significant increase in travel insurance purchases too. And you don't have the infrastructure to handle the needs and requirements. That's the problem right there. Do you think travel insurance companies were caught off guard by that? I, I, I don't think anybody 
including airlines, terminals, our government, or anybody for that matter, really expected the surge, the travel back with a vengeance that we've seen. So with that comes the overload. But, you know, you're talking about a person here. You're talking about someone who's in an emergency situation and calls a claims line. That could be frustrating. Who's kidding who? This is not about lost baggage. This is you and your own health. Yeah, that is the scary part, is that you're, you think that this is now protecting you. So what do you think has to happen here? I just think it's time like everything else. I mean, you're going to need them to staff back up. And remember, an emergency medical situation is a, an assist company that they deal with that has to be ready to take the calls. So they need more people to be able to answer the calls. Uh, cancellation and interruption, that just takes time. They have to adjudicate it. They have to get all the receipts. They have to make decisions. That will come in time. The one that worries me the most is, you're, God forbid, it's sitting in an emergency room of a hospital room. You need someone to help you, to assist you, to tell you what to do next. That's where the problem is. That's where they have to get the staffing up to pre-pandemic levels. What do you advise customers? Well, bottom line is, like any other time, you can't leave the country without out-of-country emergency medical. Who's kidding who? Now trip cancellation and interruption have become huge. So those should be purchased also because... You could get COVID the day before. You may have to cancel your trip. You may have to interrupt your trip and come home early. You may have to stay longer. All these products are now very essential when you're buying. But like everything else, I tell people, pack your patience because you've got to understand that it's not like it used to be and things take a lot more time than they used to. So if they can have that mentality, short of an emergency, that's when you need to get through. Hopefully that will clear up in the very near future. Right. Obviously, these insurance companies need to get better at this too, don't they, Martin? Because don't don't put that in our face at the bottom of the page and then not provide that service. Well, it's it's just I, I can't stress enough. It's like everything else that's gone on from cancellations, delays, and lost baggage and all that. They just can't. How do you? How, they just can't get all those calls looked after immediately. But this is your life. This is yeah. you, and you've got to have the that sort of confidence that when I bought the insurance, I will be able to call. And let me tell you, for the most part, most of the insurance companies are all on top of it and there are no issues. I can tell you the companies I deal with, we have zero issues when people call in. One of them even in your in your province there, an insurer that is excellent and definitely has beefed up the, the uh, personnel in order to take your calls right away. So you will have the few others that have got a problem, but for the most part, these problems are over with the way I'm hearing it and seeing it. Okay. And I guess, do you think this will also mean maybe a bit of a change in the type of coverage you can receive? Like, we really do have to read the fine print, don't we? I've been a firm believer that if questions are answered correctly and everything is done right, most insurance companies underwrite now at time of application, not a time of claim. Keep that in mind. When you think you have it on your credit card, when you think you have it under your group benefits plan, you didn't answer any questions. Therefore, you don't know whether you said everything because you didn't say anything on those ones. But when you buy individual travel insurance, Snowbirds, for instance, they answer a series of questions. You answer them correctly, you will not have a problem with your claims. Okay, this is all good to know. I guess we've all become just a little bit more careful. Like, I feel like people got so burned with travel, right? When everything shut down and then they couldn't get refunds. Now we all feel like, no, we've learned our lesson. Yeah, once bitten, twice shy. Like, there's no question that people are very wary. 
But the good news from my perspective that's come out of all this is the awareness of the need for travel insurance has never been more. And we're witnessing it now with sales much higher than even pre-pandemic levels. So from that perspective, I think it's a good thing that people really do understand the need for it. And this will continue, I'm sure, going forward. Okay, so then, Martin, one more time, let's just run through this for people. Then when you're advising, you know, people who are booking travel, what do you tell them to do? Okay, immediately trip cancellation when you are out money. So the minute that deposit is 100% non-refundable and all the further monies you put in after that, when it's all non-refundable, you have to buy cancellation and interruption insurance. After that, just prior to the trip, of course, you need to buy emergency medical in the event of an unexpected medical emergency. And if you have that and baggage also, I guess, could be thrown in there, you will basically be covered for any issue that could happen when you travel. Those are the key factors to buy. All right. I'm going to remember that. Martin, thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. You too. That's Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. They are an insurance company. They, you know, they help you find the right coverage essentially in Ontario. But we were talking about travel insurance. So many people are saying yes to it that now if you do have to make a claim and with certain companies, for instance, Allianz Global Assistance, they're saying just to get a hold of somebody on the phone if you have to talk to someone is more than half an hour these days. Claims processing, they say, could take up to eight weeks. So, yeah, you buy travel insurance to be protected, and now you're having trouble getting through to the people who are holding your travel insurance. Now, I wonder if that's changed for you. Have you decided, yeah, I'm never traveling again without insurance? I know it's changed at my house. This is Mornings with Simi. So many concerns these days about the use and increasing use of artificial intelligence. And there's a lot that people out there feel that AI can do. What if AI could actually help us with some of our public health crises? For instance, there are some researchers in Alberta that are experimenting with AI. They're trying to figure out a way if they can measure or determine what a patient's risk is of developing something like an opioid addiction from getting a prescription for opioids. Can you use AI for something like that? Well, we wanted to learn more about it. So joining us now is Dr. Dean Yurik, who's a program director for the Clinical Epidemiology Program at the University of Alberta. Dr. Yurik, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is fascinating. So tell me a bit about this work that's going on. Yeah, so we are, you know, interested, as you said, um, in the opioid crisis, and this, despite our best efforts here in Canada as a whole, it continues to be a major public health problem. And so we're interested in determining whether or not we could use, you know, some of these new techniques such as artificial intelligence to use the vast amounts of health data that is collected at the provincial level, both in Alberta, BC, Ontario, etc., um, to see whether or not we could use these kind of routine care um, in terms of health to see if we could actually predict which patients are going to run into trouble after receiving an opioid therapy. All right. So how would you even start with something like this? Is it a matter of asking questions? Like, how do you get the AI to look at this? Yeah. So, you know, your viewers may not be aware, but every time you touch the health system, that information gets recorded at government level. And so we have massive amounts of administrative health records. So every time you see your physician, get your prescription filled, get any lab work done, or go to the hospital emergency department, we actually have a record of why you went, what type of procedures you did, and what type of outcomes you had out of that. And so we can use that information to put it into nothing more than really a a computer program that tries to make the best combination of all those predictors to figure out which is the best way to predict how you're going to react to an opioid therapy. And that's really what the, the basis of the models are. 
Right. I guess the positive side of this, Dr. Yurik, from what I can see, would be that potentially, you know, we're, we're losing the positive effects of those opioids, how they could help people because we're so concerned about addiction, right? Yes. And that is a big concern with, with many individuals out there is that, you know, they are concerned they can't get access to the opioids. And, and that's really not what this program is meant to do. It's really meant to be a decision support aid for the clinicians at the time of care to help make a better informed decision about which opioid might be best for you, which dose to try to minimize those effects, but still ensure that you're getting enough opioid to, to control your pain. Right. Because that's a hard decision. I know that a lot of doctors complain that they don't get enough training in terms of being able to recognize some of those signs. Like they don't get enough addictions training, do they? Absolutely. And, and especially now with the, the immense pressures on family doctors, many people are just walking into medical clinics and things like that who, you know, is a new doctor to them. They don't have that continuity of care. And so those doctors are even more a little bit in the dark because they don't know your entire history. Um, and so these types of programs can, can go through that vast amount of health data and try to present a more clear picture to that physician at the time of prescribing. How far along is this research? So this research is actually very far along. We've tested the models. It's very good at predicting individuals. So we get about four out of every five patients correct in terms of whether or not they're going to run into an opioid-related problem within 30 days. And we're actually working now with the government of Alberta and the College of Physicians and Surgeons to try to implement this in real time to see if it actually makes a difference uh, to prescribing and outcomes for patients. Right. How challenging would that be, though, to actually put this into use? Yeah, it is a, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but in Alberta, like BC and other provinces, you know, we do have, for lack of a better term, a internet directly for health. So physicians can actually log in and see prescriptions, previous visits, hospitalizations and that. And so we kind of envision that this would actually be done in the background and that information would be presented to the physician in real time through that internet type application. Right. So we would have to like opt into it, right? Like you're right. I can log into an app and I can see all of my prescriptions and everything I've asked for. Would this be kind of an extension of that? Sort of. Um, in most provinces, your College of Physicians and Surgeons actually monitor all opioid prescribing in the province. So they monitor not only physicians, but also the types of patients that are using it. So they already have access to that information on you. And so this would just be another layer put on top of that that they could provide in real time to the physicians. Interesting. So have other provinces kind of expressed an interest in using this? Not yet, but I think every province is trying to find these types of solutions to try to curb some of the opioid crisis that we're seeing. Um, and, you know, given the vast amounts of data that BC, Alberta, and some of these other provinces have, it just makes sense that these are kind of the ways that we're going to have to move forward in terms of our public health if we're really going to change outcomes for patients. Right. Would people have to opt into this? Generally not. Um, so this is just a, a simple decision support aid, which clinicians use all the time. Uh, you're probably not even aware of it, but when you go into a pharmacy, there's lots of decision support aids for pharmacists to help making sure that your drugs aren't interacting with each other. The same thing happens in the hospital and physician's offices. So this would just be another kind of alert system for them to right. bring some information to them as you're sitting in the office with them so they can make that better informed decision. Dr. York, do we know how many patients are at risk of having an adverse outcome with some opioids? You know, it's tough to say, but, you know, for instance, over a two-year period in, in our study, we had about um, 600,000 individuals in Alberta get an opioid over two years. And out of those uh, 600,000 individuals, 5,000 had an adverse reaction to the opioid and ended up in the hospital, emerged, or unfortunately died within 30 days of receiving that opioid. 
So it is a, quite a big problem. Right. So this would help monitor all that, right? Correct. Yes. And, and hopefully bend that curve so that, you know, maybe you don't end up in a hospital or emergency department and it's something that can be caught earlier um, and fixed before you end up in such a, a poor state of health. Okay, that, that sounds interesting. Okay, so then is this the future, do you think? Is this just the beginning of using AI for more situations like this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think the public realizes how much AI is already being looked at um, in the health world. So they're starting to look at it for diagnosis of cancers, so getting machines to actually read the MRI results to figure out exactly what type and, and where that cancer is. It's also being used to predict which cancers will respond better to certain therapies, we're using it in diabetes and heart failure to try to predict which individuals end up with complications or admissions to hospital. So, yeah, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, and it is already being used quite heavily in some areas already. Well, Dr. Yurik, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, that's fascinating. That's Dr. Dean Yurik, Program Director for the Clinical Epidemiology Program at the University of Alberta. They are combining kind of prescribing with artificial intelligence And essentially, they took a look at something like 3 million opioid prescriptions a year from doctors, nurse practitioners, dentists, like you name it. And then they, you know, paired that with all of the patients in Alberta and they were writing a program that would help that that program, that artificial intelligence, predict who the prescription would be good for, would be okay for, what dosage might be right, which particular opioid would work better for them without an adverse effect or outcome. It is a whole new world out there, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. I'll forget about looking ahead to springtime because right now we are very much still in the throes of winter and it sounds like it's going to be that way for the next week or so. You heard everything that's going on there. Uh, You might have woken up to some snow overnight, right? A sprinkling of that. There is more on the way. Heck, I even heard the newscast that Los Angeles County is under an ultra rare blizzard warning. So these storms are big. Let's talk more about them now. So joining us is Jonathan Bao, who's a senior meteorologist at Environment and Climate Change Canada. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Simi. It thanks is, for having me. No, thanks for being here because we need somebody to help us out with this. It's cold out there. How long is this going to last? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, we're just uh, reminded that uh, winter is still still here with us. Um, and at least with the initial cold snap that we're seeing uh, this morning, we'll, we'll have just one more night uh, tonight uh, of this uh, colder uh, temperatures and, and low wind chill values. Then we'll have the next uh, system come in for this weekend to bring in, uh, if we're ready for it, uh, more snow. Uh, on the plus side, temperatures will still moderate a little bit, but looking you know, well into the long range, uh, temperatures are forecast to be below seasonal, at least until the next month. Okay, so are we like breaking any records here? Uh, at this time, no, surprisingly. Uh, for the Vancouver area, the records, uh, record lows are about the minus 15, minus 17 degrees uh, temperature. Uh, <laughs> when was that? Uh, I haven't uh, looked at the dates there, oh, but uh, yeah, the, the, uh, overnight, the forecast overnight low, at least for tonight for Metro Vancouver, is minus 7. So we've still got a ways to go to the records. Oh boy, okay, so ways to go. So, But this sounds like it's happening everywhere. Is this like right across the country seeing this kind of weather? Yeah, so, so uh, absolutely. You know, we're looking at... Um, Oh yes. So to answer your question, yes, across the uh, the country, we are looking at uh, very cold temperatures. You know, we have extreme cold temperature warnings for you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, and then of course we had some of that um, uh, snow and ice pulse uh, through eastern Canada uh, into the eastern United States. And uh, this is just all 
you know, due to if we, if we step back into the large scale global uh, circulation here, it's just we're looking at a, a disruption in the in the long wave pattern, and um, you know, if we have a strong ridge of high pressure over the the poles, if you can imagine the the cold air over the North Pole is say say a ball, and we have a high high pressure is kind of squishing that uh, that ball out. We'll have the cold air kind of spill over uh, the sides, and uh, we're the lucky recipients of this uh, this uh, spillage of cold air over <laughs> North North America. And uh, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on, <laughs> on uh, your preferences, the uh, this uh, outbreak of of cold air. Uh, will actually be with us for you know uh, at least a week, if uh, if not longer. Oh boy, okay, and that's up and down also the coast. I noticed too, like they're they're talking blizzard warnings in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, I suppose with the the cold uh, air extending as far south into California, um, you know, any any low pressure system that moves into the area uh, will definitely have the potential for uh, heavy snow and. Um, this low pressure system that gave us uh, the or, or gave Vancouver Island um, heavy snow that is forecast is to slide south down oh. down the, uh, the the U.S. coast towards California. So that would be that low pressure system that's going to give him that uh, rare blizzard. Okay, so you said not the end for us in terms of snow. So Saturday I see snow in the forecast, but how much can we expect? Yes. So yes, snow is in the forecast uh, for this weekend. Right now, uh, the timing we're thinking towards the Saturday night period and into Sunday morning. Um, as you can imagine, the the, the amounts are, are you know still up in the air uh, due, just due to the you know whether your uh, your proximity to the water, your elevation, um, your exposure to the the outflow, uh, the cold uh, Arctic outflow uh, air. And of course, the track of the low. Um, but at this time, uh, we're thinking anywhere from 10 centimeters to 30 centimeters uh, across the south coast, so from Vancouver Island, Sunshine Coast, Metro Vancouver, into Fraser Valley. Jonathan, honestly, my mouth kind of just fell open because that's that's a lot. Th- that is a lot. Um, yes, but <laughs> uh, again, we're, we're still trying to work out the details. Um, for, for this weather system coming in, but the uh, the potential is there uh, if the if the moisture is present. When you when you look at this season, then have we seen like an average amount of snow for this year? Like, what's it been like? Um, well, I haven't been able to look at the uh, um, the the whole season uh, as a detail. I think that will come out uh, next week. We'll have the uh, we'll have the climatologist crunch the numbers for that. Um, so I can definitely get back to you on, right. on that for next week. Oh, I will definitely want to hear more about that. <laughs> well, thank you very much for bringing us up to date on this. You're welcome, Simi.